Psalms 19, verse 7 says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And so if you have your Bible with you today, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 23 this morning, which unfolds for us the second evangelistic impact of enduring goodness. See, in our exploration of Christianity 101 and how to live in this world as elect exiles for the glory of God, we've been learning most recently how our saved and transformed lives ought to have an evangelistic impact. Having experienced God's goodness and grace and salvation, we as God's children should reflect the same goodness and grace, the same goodness and grace to those who are lost around us. And Peter's been showing us what that goodness and graciousness ought to look like in our relationships with the unsaved ever since verse 13. And as he summarizes it so well in verse 17, it looks like being subject, honoring everyone, loving the brotherhood, and fearing God in spite of difficulties, in spite of discouragement, in spite of opposition. Our transformed lives are to have an evangelistic impact in this world when, by the grace and the Spirit of God within us, we show enduring goodness in spite of opposition. When we show proper subjection to our authorities, no matter who's over us. When we show sincere respect towards everyone, no matter who we're dealing with. When we show genuine love for other believers, no matter how difficult that might be. And when we show reverent awe towards God, no matter our circumstances or situations. When we show enduring goodness like this before the eyes of others, it has an evangelistic impact. And Peter shows us what exactly that impact looks like in verses 19-25 through 25 of this chapter. And there are three evangelistic impacts of enduring goodness that Peter outlines here. We saw last week in verses 19 through 20 that enduring goodness first reflects grace. Peter writes, For this is grace, when through mindfulness of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So Peter is clear there that one of the ways we radiate the transforming grace of God out for a watching world to see is by consistently doing what is good, even if you have to suffer for it. This shows God's saving grace. And this is the first reason why we ought to be subject. We ought to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, and fear God. And this is the first reason why we ought to show enduring goodness in the face of opposition. It's because enduring goodness radiates grace. Well, today we're going to look at the next reason why we ought to be showing enduring goodness in all those four ways, and that's because enduring goodness reflects Jesus. That's what we're going to see in verses 21 through 23. Enduring goodness reflects Jesus. And then next week in verses 24 through 25, we're going to see how enduring goodness reaches sinners. So that's the threefold evangelistic impact that enduring goodness makes. It radiates grace, reflects Jesus, and it reaches sinners with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 25. And for context, I'm going to start in verse 18. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Verse 19. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, 
one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, verse 21, you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the Word of God the sum of whose word is truth, and every one of His righteous rules endure forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the Word that is put before us. What a rich feast of truth. Father, I pray that Your Spirit would help us to receive it. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to believe and to obey. Father, I pray that You would change us by Your Spirit through Your Word this morning so that we might be able to exhibit the transforming grace that was seen most clearly in Christ. Help us to show that to a lost and dying world. Help us to be Christians. And show us what essential Christianity truly is. For Your honor and for Your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now before we dive in, I just want to state right off the beginning here, One of the reasons why I love 1 Peter so much is because it presents such an accurate picture of what the genuine Christian life really is. What it truly looks like to be a Christian in this world. The timeless picture that Peter has been presenting of our Christian lives is really that of a temporary duality, if you will, of seemingly negative and positive elements that are united together while we walk here on this earth. That's our Christian experience, and Scripture is honest and truthful enough to tell us exactly that. God tells us in this book that we are not only elect and chosen by God, we are also exiles being rejected increasingly by this world. And God lays out this contrast that exists in our Christian lives very plainly. Throughout most of chapter 1 into chapter 2, the Christian life is overall described in a very positive way, if you remember. 
I mean, Peter just keeps on piling on spiritual blessings after spiritual blessings over and over and over again. To give you a quick reminder of that, Peter says in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that as those in Christ, we've been given eternal security in the hands of the triune God. We've been given great mercy. We've been, giving a li- we've been given a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've been given an incorruptible inheritance. We've been given a supernatural faith, joy, hope, and love. We've been given a wondrous salvation. We have been given a heavenly Father. We've been given a precious redemption. We've been given a purified soul. We've been given a brotherhood of love. We've been given a constant nourishment through the Word of God. We've been given a divine ministry and a supernatural calling. We've been made a part of God's chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation. In short, as Peter says in chapter 2, verse 9, we are a people of God's own possession. Now, when you get done with a list like that, you feel like practically levitating. (laughs) I mean, based on that, you would almost think to yourself, with all these blessings from God Himself, no doubt I will be viewed with envy and and with respect from all those around me, right? Wrong. See, starting in chapter 2, verse 18, Peter begins to show us That being chosen by God for salvation also means being destined for suffering here on this earth. In fact, from verse 18 of chapter 2 on to the end of this book, the idea of suffering and persecution appears over 30 different times. On average, that's almost once for every other verse. And the message Peter's communicating is very clear. To be a Christian means to suffer. It means to be reviled, cursed, lied about, about, harmed, maligned, mistreated, and insulted, even when you're zealously doing what is good. Now, that's not very glamorous, but it is the truth. It's the nature of the Christian life. On the one hand, we go each and every day experiencing profound and infinitely astonishing blessings. And on the other hand, we endure on a day in and day out Basis often intense sufferings. Why? Because we're in Christ. That's why. The reason for our heavenly blessings and our earthly hardships are one and the same. We are in Jesus. And we as Christians are going to be called on to do good and suffer for it because that's what following Jesus is all about. And that's what Peter's going to say in our passage today. Why should we be subject? Why should we honor everyone? Why should we love the brotherhood? And why should we fear God? Why should we show enduring goodness in the face of opposition, even if it means unjust suffering for those very things? It's because enduring goodness reflects Jesus That's in verses 21 through 23. Peter says in verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Notice, Peter says, For to this you have been called. For to this, this action talked about in the previous verse of doing good and suffering for it. 
To this you have been called. As I mentioned last week, we as believers have not only been called to salvation and to eternal glory, we have also been called to temporary suffering here on earth. As Paul says over in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict. See, contrary to what many pastors and speakers in America are teaching today, undeserved suffering in the life of a believer is not God's plan B. It's God's plan A for your life. Scripture is clear. It is part of God's sovereign, saving, and sanctifying plan for your life that you should do good and suffer for it. 1 Thessalonians 3.3 puts it this way, Let no one be moved or disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Fellow pilgrims, The glorious destiny that has been assured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that is awaiting all of us in Christ Jesus is only reached by walking through valleys of affliction and hardship and loss for the sake of Christ. That's what Scripture teaches. It is so certain of a truth. That Paul says without any exception in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, of course, not all believers in the same manner or to the same degree, but all with the same experience, suffering while doing good. Those who have truly been called and are destined to salvation in Christ are those who have been called and are destined to suffer with Christ. So I ask you this question. Friend, what has your commitment to Christ cost you in this life? What have you decidedly lost or given up in this life Because of your grace-endowed commitment to follow Jesus. If your answer this morning is nothing, be warned. Because listen to me, and I say this with as much compassion in my heart. Because a commitment to Christ that costs you nothing is a commitment to Christ that will give you nothing. For what did Jesus Himself say in Luke 9, 23-25? And Jesus said to all, that is all, believers, unbelievers, everybody, this is Christ's call to you this morning. If anyone would come after Me, in other words, if you want to follow Jesus and find and obtain eternal life in Him, let Him deny Himself and take up His cross daily and follow Me. For whoever would save His life, whoever seeks to preserve the life that you currently have, will lose it. But whoever loses His life for My sake will save it. See, this is the call of Christ. 
to which you have been called. It is a call to die to yourself and to the personal desires that you have daily and to choose to follow Jesus and to please Him above all else, no matter the cost or consequences. And Jesus makes it so clear over and over and over and over again in the Gospels. I have like a list of seven different references up here. The path of eternal life is a path of obeying Jesus no matter the cost, even if it means losing your house and your property, and even if it means losing precious relationships, like with your brothers or sisters, your father or mother, or even your own spouse and children. You are to love and please Jesus more than they And if you're not willing to count that cost, if you're not willing to bow the knee and consider Jesus and His eternal life a pearl of great price that is fairer and more worthy than all this world has to give, or even all that this world has already given you, if you're not willing to follow Jesus into suffering loss for doing what is good, then Jesus Himself says that you're not even worth being called a disciple. Because you're not one. If you ultimately bow the knee to your relationships rather than Jesus, then you're not following Christ. And when I think of Evangelism 101, can I just say as a pastor, uh, how many years now? I don't know. Getting on 10, right? Over 10. As I started considering Christ's words this week, I have a great fear for so many people in our American churches. Because there are so many people that have such an external veneer of religion that it looks like they're Christians until it comes to sharing the gospel with those they care about most. And then they are ashamed of Christ. And yet these are the very people that Jesus says you need to examine whether you're committed enough to follow me. Do you love eternal life to speak the gospel to them or not? Who is your Lord, believer? For to know Christ is to love Him and to love Christ is to serve Him no matter the cost of property or relationships. And so if that sounds harsh, then it just shows how far the American church has reti- and, and American Christianity has retreated from the teachings of Christ Himself. Read the four Gospels for yourself and see if what I've just told you is so. Learn what the Gospel is according to Christ Himself. For Christ is quite clear in Matthew 7, verse 14, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. To be called to salvation is to be called to suffer. It is to be called to be willing to abandon and lose all things to follow Jesus. Christianity is shaped like a cross, and it can't be anything less. Any impulse that you or I feel to pervert that shape and to make it more palatable or more popular or more powerful to our culture is an impulse that can only end in disaster. Christ's call is to take up our cross daily and follow Him. 
And we as Christians need to remember this in our everyday lives. If I have not been called to ease and comfort in this life, but rather been called to do good even if it means suffering for it, then I cannot let, listen to this, I cannot let fear of loss, fear of hardship, or fear of the unknown have any part to play in the decisions that I make in following Jesus. I must simply commit myself to doing what is good, no matter the consequences, and take the adventure that is set before me. I must simply deny myself, take up my cross daily, and follow Christ. For this you have been called. This is to what we've been called. Believers, we have been called to suffer in doing good. And here's the proof. Here's the proof. How do you know that you as a follower of Christ have been called to suffer? End of verse 21. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Beloved, do you see the heart of our Savior here? First, it says Christ also suffered. You see, when you're suffering unjustly for no fault of your own, when you're maligned or you're mistreated, when you become the victim of other people's cruel malice and deceit and slander, you are not alone in that. Christ also suffered. He knows what you're going through. He knows what it's like. As Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Believer, when you are going through suffering, even unjust suffering, remember, you are not alone. Jesus understands. Jesus cares. Jesus is with you. As Paul himself personally testified of in 2 Timothy 4, 16-17, at my first defense, when he stood before the ruler of the known world, he said, no one came to stand by me. At all deserted me. Verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and he strengthened me. See, Jesus knows your suffering. He is with you in your suffering. And He will lead you safely through your suffering. As Peter says next, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. So notice first, in His sufferings, Christ left us what? He left us an example. That's hupogramos in the Greek, and it means literally to write over something. So the picture that should come to our minds is that of a young child learning to write his ABCs and his numbers correctly in letters. Right? This is exactly where Ethan is right now in his schooling. He, like every other child, has to learn how to write his letters and numbers correctly. So what is he given? He's given a piece of paper with lines across it, and within those lines, faint images of the letters and numbers that he has to learn how to write and actually make it legible. Right? And so what is that child's assignment? It is to trace or to write over that particular letter over and over and over again until he finally learns to follow the example given on the page and write the letter correctly. He is to show no originality. He is just to commit to replicating that image accurately. 
That is exactly the way it is for us as believers in following Jesus when we are faced with unjust suffering. In His suffering, Christ left us an example of how to respond. And we don't need to figure out how to endure suffering. We just need to look to Jesus in the midst of our suffering and commit ourselves to replicating His perfect example as closely as possible. And that's why Peter says he left you an example that you might follow in His steps. Listen, the call to follow Jesus is not some vague call to go in some general direction that Jesus kind of went. It is a call to step exactly where Jesus stepped. It is a call to do exactly what Jesus did. The picture that comes to my mind is when I was a young lad in Michigan and the winter storms would drop so much snow that it would be over the top of my dad's boots and for me, well over my knees. And I can remember on several occasions heading out to do the chores with my dad and the only way that I could make it through this deep snow is by stepping exactly where my dad had stepped. As long as I stayed focused on stepping exactly where he stepped, I could make it to the barn. But the moment I tried to chart my own course, the snow would be too much for my stubby little legs, and I'd faceplant, which, of course, is a child I loved, but nevertheless. That's exactly the way it is with Christ. The only way that you and I can go through the deep sufferings of this present life and live it for the glory of God is by stepping exactly where Jesus has stepped. As long as we are focused on stepping where He stepped, we can make it through suffering, injustice, and in wrongdoing. But the moment we take our eyes off of Christ and try to be original, we're going to fall. And so Peter makes it very clear here. As we go through unjust suffering here on earth, we need to stay focused on one thing. Reflecting Jesus. Reflecting Jesus. And what did Jesus look like in the midst of His suffering? What example are we to imitate? Peter's going to show us he looked like someone who was so committed to showing submission, respect, love, and reverence. He looked like someone who's committed to doing what is good, even if he had to endure suffering for it. Look at verses 22 through 23. This is our example to which we've been called. Verse 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judged justly. See, in the midst of injustice and suffering, we are called to follow Jesus. We are called to imitate him and to live like him. And how did Jesus live? Well, first, verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. I want you to pause for a moment and think about the significance of that one phrase. Peter lived with Jesus day in and day out for over three years. And he observed Jesus very closely during times of great pressure and intense hardship. And yet, throughout it all, Peter's testimony concerning Jesus was, He committed no sin. 
Just like Peter said back in verse 19 of chapter 1, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was like that of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter never, ever, ever, ever saw Christ's sin in the smallest of ways. No moral imperfections. And notice, he says, neither was deceit found in his mouth. That is a direct quote taken from Isaiah 53, verse 9, where Isaiah wrote nearly 700 years before the coming of Jesus, he did no violence, and there was never deceit found in his mouth. Now that's astonishing, because every sin of the heart always shows itself in the mouth. As Jesus taught in Matthew 15, 18 through 19, the sins of the heart will always show themselves, and they'll always show themselves first in the mouth. It's just a matter of time. That's why James says if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. He's a perfect man. Well, guess what? That's exactly who Jesus was. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus was the perfect man. He was never conniving, never scheming. He was never underhanded, never misleading, never deceptive. He never played half-truths with people. Jesus was absolutely pure and spotless, the very righteousness of God. And the point that Peter's making in context is this. In light of Christ's absolute and utter perfection... Jesus' suffering, unlike anyone else's suffering ever on earth, Jesus' sufferings was truly unjust. Jesus' sufferings was truly unfair. And Jesus' sufferings were truly undeserved to an extent that you or I will never experience. Jesus didn't suffer because He did something wrong, either at the beginning or along the way. He never did anything wrong. And Jesus didn't suffer because he said something wrong. Jesus never said anything wrong. Jesus was absolutely pure and perfect, the exact picture of divine wisdom and discernment at all time. You could never excuse away Jesus' sufferings by saying, well, he didn't handle that well. That's often an accusation that we'll throw at certain people when they start experiencing suffering, don't we? I hate to say it, but when we were going through COVID-19 and certain pastors were experiencing suffering, a lot of believers would look at their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and say, well, they're suffering because they didn't handle that well. Well, listen, that argument falls apart when you look at the example of Christ because he handled all things well, and what did he still experience? Persecution and hardship. And in fact, he experienced persecution and hardship because he handled everything well. Jesus does all things well, and he handled everything, every single circumstance that divinely came his way in the best way eternally possible. And yet he still suffered because of it. See, you can't get away from it. This is the example that we are called to follow. We're not this way, are we, by the way? What I just (laughs) described, most of the time when we get in trouble, at least I'm speaking for myself, when we get in trouble and we start suffering at the hands of others, even if that suffering began in an unjust way, we usually do a good job of providing more reasons for suffering after that, don't we? Because we sin in response to other people's sins against us. Jesus never did. Maybe we complain, or we grumble, or we get disrespectful, or we get deceitful, or we get angry, or we get bitter, or we lose our patience, or we become unduly critical and rebellious and skeptical. 
In, in other words, normally when we go through even unjust sufferings, we sin along the way. But not with Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, and he suffered worse than any of us. Jesus knows unjust, undeserved, unmerited suffering to a degree none of us as sinners can even come close to understanding. And yet, how did Jesus respond to his unjust suffering? Answer, with enduring goodness, proper subjection, constant respect. Look at the beginning of verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. You see, throughout his life, Jesus was constantly mocked, slandered, blasphemed, and bad-mouthed by other people, and yet Jesus never responded in kind. Why, in one instance, in John chapter 8, the religious leaders furiously called Jesus, listen to this, the possessed half-breed son of an idolatrous adulterer. And Jesus' response in verses 49 through 50 was simply this, You dishonor me, yet I don't seek my own glory. Over on in in Luke 11, verse 15, some of the crowds there were mocking Jesus, and they said that Jesus' power to cast out demons actually came from the false idol, Belzebul, Lord of Dung. So there they were, seeing the very power of God manifested in the Son of God, and, and they were calling it nothing but garbage, refuse, and dung. The blasphemy is almost terrifying when you think about it. And yet Jesus' response in verses 17 through 20 was simply this. Well, that doesn't make any sense, right? Every kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Satan wouldn't turn against Satan, but if it's by the power of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come among you. See, throughout his earthly life, Jesus was continually reviled. He was continually derided. He was continually put down, and yet he never reviled in return. Why, even in Matthew 27, at his trial for the death sentence before Governor Pilate, Matthew records for us in verse 12, when Jesus was accused by the false priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they are testifying against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, Peter says, he did not threaten. And oh, how he suffered. Matthew 27, 28 through 30 says this, And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! But they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And then they nailed him naked to a cross. And even then they weren't over it. Because even as he hung there dying, Luke 23, 25-27 tells us, The people stood by, leering at him. And the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the King of the Jews, save yourselves. And Matthew 27, 44 tells us that even the two robbers who were crucified with him reviled him in the same ways. Throughout his slow suffocation, 
and intense suffering at the hands of men beneath the wrath of God. Throughout it all, Jesus was continually mocked and scorned by sinners, and yet He never threatened. He never retaliated. There's no, I'll get you. There was no, just you wait, you'll pay. There was only these words, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Isn't it a wonderful thing that God did not treat His enemies like we want to treat ours? See, what makes us different as Christians? It is whether or not we reflect the image of Christ. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten. We almost can't even conceive of that. You know, when I think of that, I think I identify a lot more with Paul from Acts 23, verse 3. When Ananias commanded him to be struck, Paul cried out, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall! See, when Paul was reviled in that instance, even he wasn't a perfect guy. He reviled in return. And he had to apologize afterwards. But never with Jesus. He's the perfect example of how to control one's spirit, emotions, and tongue by the Spirit of God. He was the perfect example of how to show enduring goodness in the midst of injustice and suffering. Now, you might be thinking to yourself this morning, well, I mean, Jesus was able to do that because he was God. There's no way I could do that. And I want to tell you that's not true. Because when Jesus showed this type of enduring goodness, even in the midst of suffering, I want you to know he did it as a man, as a human example for humans to follow. As Peter tells us at the end of verse 23, he tells us how Jesus was able to demonstrate such such spiritual endurance and goodness as a man. And the answer is by maintaining a constant trust and faith in God as his Father. See, this is the powerhouse of enduring goodness. It is faith in God. Look at the end of verse 23. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? What did he do the whole time? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's how Jesus was able to show enduring goodness in the midst of suffering. And that's how we'll be able to do that as well. It's by continually entrusting ourselves to God who we know judges all things justly. That word entrust means to hand over to someone to keep. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus literally kept on handing himself and all the unjust sufferings he was going through over to God and said, would you please take this and carry this? You see it throughout his life. You see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see it climaxed in Luke 23, 46, when Jesus, at the very moment of his death, cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In the face of injustice, Jesus continually entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And that's how he was able to show enduring goodness. Because he could leave the just judgment into the hands of God. Jesus understood three things. And if we're to reflect Him in the midst of this fallen world of sorrow and suffering and injustice, then we need to understand these three things as well. Here they are. First, God alone is able to judge all things justly. 
He alone can perfectly distinguish between good and evil, to rightly understand all things, and to never, ever, 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 ever pass a wrong sentence. So first, God alone is able to judge all things justly. You and I are not. Second, God is going to judge all things justly. And third, God is not bound to do any of those things within our timetables. See, just because you don't see justice performed in your lifetime does not mean that you cannot trust God to be just. He is not bound by your lifetime or by anyone else's. And indeed, out of mercy, most of God's justice is reserved for that time when Scripture says it is appointed unto every man once to die, and then comes the judgment. Every man, woman, and child will stand before God someday and be judged. You don't need to worry about whether you're going to see it in your lifetime or not, believer. You need to be concerned about whether you and they are ready for that final moment. Because final judgment is coming. So we should stay mindful of these three things as we go through suffering and even unjust suffering as believers here in this world. We need to remember that God alone is able to judge all things justly. God alone is going to judge all things justly. And God is not bound to do any of those things within our lifetime. But He will surely do it. It's by staying mindful of these three truths that we can follow Christ's example, step exactly where He stepped, entrust ourselves to God's care, and as Romans 12:19 says, never avenge ourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Our job is not to follow the example of Jesus riding out of heaven on a white charger with a sword coming out of His mouth. That's not the example we're called to follow, believers. The example we're called to follow is Christ given here in 1 Peter chapter 2. He takes care of justice. We declare God's grace and goodness to a lost and dying world. So that's our responsibility. Keep on properly submitting. Keep on being respectful. Keep on loving the brotherhood. Keep on fearing God. Keep on doing good, no matter the consequences, no matter the cost. Because when you do this, you reflect your Savior. For this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return, When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's our example, believers, that we are to follow in his steps. This is how we live as elect exiles, looking unto Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith, stepping exactly where he has stepped, and doing exactly what he has done, so that others might see the grace and goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ in us. Now in conclusion. If what I've been describing to you this morning is completely foreign to your experience and you know nothing of the ability to respond to injustice and mistreatment with enduring goodness, in fact, you might be looking at your life right now and saying, it's been characterized by reviling those who revile me. 
and threatening those who threaten me and making others pay for what they've done to me. If that's how you operate on a daily basis, I invite you this morning to be born again. Your sin has separated you from the life of God that's described in these verses. But if you put your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you will be delivered from the penalty of your sins and you will be made new. This morning, look to Jesus as the very next verse of our passage is going to say, He Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you are healed. If you know nothing of the enduring goodness and life of Christ in yourself, if you know nothing of the life and goodness of our Lord, then I urge you today to repent of your sins and trust in Him. If you do, then you'll be forgiven and you'll be born again to a new life that not only has tasted the goodness of the Lord and salvation, but can share it with others also by your words and by your actions. Look to Christ. For the rest of us who have trusted in this great Savior who suffered and was reviled in our place, This is our example, believers, that we might follow in His steps. Indeed, it is a glorious calling. It is a glorious calling to look like Jesus in suffering. Paul said, oh, that I might know Him in His suffering. This is our call. In the midst of your difficulties with the unsaved believer, look to Jesus He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, so follow him. Don't suffer, believer, for doing what is evil. Suffer for for doing what is good. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, so follow him. Don't repay evil for evil, but repay evil with good. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So believer, follow Jesus. Trust in God and do what is good in that moment, no matter what they've done to you, and no matter the cost of what doing good might might be. Look to Jesus. Reflect Christ. Follow in His steps. For to this we have been called. And this is the way we reflect Jesus. We'll look at the final reason for why we ought to show enduring goodness next week. But for now, this is the Word of God from 1 Peter 2, 21-23, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience towards the fervent care of one another until he who bore the cross bears the crown and we with him. To that end, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Father, make it our mission, make it our heartbeat to be like Jesus so that we might be of some lasting eternal good in this world. Father, we thank You that we don't have to trust in ourselves for judgment. That we don't have to trust in ourselves for justice. But there is a day coming when the Savior and Lord of all men who has ascended into Your right hand will come back to judge the secrets of men by the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Until that day, Father, help us to be faithful in reflecting our Savior, the great shepherd and overseer of our souls. Help us to reflect His goodness and His grace to a lost and dying world. May we respond to suffering and injustice like He so that we might be able to tell the world 
the reason for the enduring goodness and hope that is in us with gentleness and respect. Equip us, Father, we pray, towards this great mission as a church in our day. In Jesus' name.